0: America and happy Tuesday. Wow. What a week it's been. And it's only Tuesday. Just think about that. Put that into your philosophical side for a second. Wow. It's Tuesday. And it feels like a whole week of work has happened. A lot of drama going on across this country. The budget negotiations are in red hot mode. Republicans fighting with themselves. Democrats and Republicans always fighting against each other. And there is no clarity at how this is going to come out. But I do want to say something that is I've been in this town a long time, more than 30 years. I have seen budget negotiation after budget negotiation end the same way every time, which is that, oh, this is the year we're going to cut spending. Oh, we didn't do it this year, but we'll do it next year. Trust us. And year after year, Republican, Democrat, didn't matter who was in charge. Since the last balanced budget we had in the late 90s between Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton, and of course, what was a very good economy back then, we have been chronically in debt. And today... The debt clock passed a number that I would never in my lifetime imagined we would be talking about, $33 trillion, $33 trillion in accrued national debt. Nearly all of that, but the majority of it in the last 20 years. So the, this generation, the people that you see on the stage today, when you see a Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell... They have been the people that presided over the greatest amassment of debt, the worst credit card bills in American history. And so this debate has to be taken in that context. We have to understand what this really signifies to the American people. Now, while that's going on, those who have been holding the line, particularly those members of the Freedom Caucus They have been getting this sort of discussion going that I haven't seen ever before in a country. I haven't seen eight, nine days before the deadline of money running out, eight, nine business days before the deadline run out, a proposal that would reduce discretionary spending by 8%. That's what's on the table now. Is that going to be the final deal? I don't know. I don't think so. But the fact that someone would put on the table for a short period of time, an 8%, even for a CR for a couple of months, that's a number I've never heard before. I've never seen it go to cutting that low. In fact, I've really never seen it go to cuts. And so there is something phenomenal going on. What it is, what it will ultimately spell out to be, I don't know yet, right? I don't think anyone does. There will be people that want to close down the government to make a point. There'll be people that say it's suicide to shut it down for Republicans. They'd rather worry about their re-election chances next year, but we're going to get deeply into that today. We've got two incredible guests. We're going to kick off the day with Senator Marsha Blackburn from the great state of Tennessee, one of the great conservative fiscal and security conservatives in Washington, D.C. She's going to talk about the budget negotiations, what the Senate hasn't been doing to help out, because they haven't done anything really in the Senate to help out, and also a little bit about Hunter Biden, all these things that we're disclosing, including the news story I broke yesterday about Hunter Biden, and the FBI closing down a source, uh, all of those will be on the table today. And we'll start with Senator Blackburn about that. And the second part of the conversation, we're going to turn to one of the new freshmen who are a no-holds-barred member of Congress. They're going to say what they mean, mean what they say, and they're going to act accordingly no matter what pressure, no matter what impunity they face, no matter what criticism or threats they face. Uh, Eli Crane, he's a former special operator in our military. He is a bona fide military hero. He is a first time Republican congressman from Arizona, and he is holding the line. 8% isn't going to be good enough for him. I don't think we're going to ask him. He's going to round out the back end of the show. We're going to really focus today almost entirely on the budget crisis and the budget debate. It's actually not more than a crisis. It's a moment of opportunity. Somewhere here, there's an opportunity for leaders to rise up and begin to make the sort of changes that reverse the credit card debt that our political leaders have recklessly amassed for much of the last two to three decades. I don't know what that's going to mean, how it's going to mean. Is it a shutdown, not a shutdown? Is there a cut or not? We don't know yet. But I can tell you this. This is different. This is different than any of the Budget crises or budget debates or spending bills or CRs or authorizations or appropriations bill coverage that I've been since I got to this town in 1991. George H.W. Bush was president then. Tom Foley was speaker then. George Mitchell was head of the Senate. All those people are long gone. But the debt crisis is still here And it is far worse today at $33 trillion than it's ever been. And so today, we're going to focus on that. Now, a little teaser for what I hope to offer you in the morning. I'm working on a new exclusive report out of documents that have been sent to Congress and testimony that's been secured by Congress. It's a very simple story with a very, very important significance. And that is that we now know that the FBI and IRS were probing allegations that Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign may have benefited from campaign finance, criminal violations. That's the exact word in the documents, campaign finance, criminal violations. The theory of the case was that a politically connected lawyer from Hollywood was helping pay off Hunter Biden's massive IRS debts, and that should be considered a campaign contribution to the Biden campaign. But when agents tried to bring this first in Delaware, also in Washington, D.C., it appears they got put down, shut down, thwarted, by the conversations they had with prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware, U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. But for the first time, we know that Joe Biden's campaign was the object of some of the allegations, some of the concerns, some of the perceived illegalities. We're going to have this whole story laid out for you. It's complex, it's detailed, it's exclusive. When you wake up tomorrow morning on justthenews.com, you can have it all. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Senator Marshall Blackburn, right after these messages. Statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, and it's not a substitute or alternative for care from a health care provider. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. As you know, there is a lot going on in Capitol Hill. There's a lot of discussion about where we spend our money, how we spend our money, whether it's really having an impact. Our next guest is one of the clarion voices in the Senate. When there's a lot of mushiness in the Senate, you never get that when you hear from Senator Marshall Blackburn. She gives it straight. She has very clear convictions and principles. And at this moment, where we're talking about spending for next year, when we're talking about possible impeachment inquiry, I thought it'd be a great time to hear from the senator from the great state of Tennessee. Senator, welcome to the show.
1: I'm delighted to join you. Thank you so much.
0: You are one of my favorites when it comes to foreign policy and spending, because obviously you want to align our spending with our foreign policy values. There was this extraordinary report that came out of the GAO in the last couple of days that the U.S. can't demonstrate that it achieved anything with about $3 billion in aid and investments it's given to Mexico. Very troubling to someone like you who really wants that money to be aligned to values, to make consequences, to create real action in the world.
1: Well, it should be used to create action that is going to help us to defend freedom, free people, free markets. That is uh, what the American people expect. How do we make decisions around the globe where we're going to increase uh, the, the safety and security of the American people and of our markets and our economy. And that is one of the things that is just so frustrating to them when they look at this open border and they look at the way the cartels are running that area along the southern border. And John, when you look at the way the cartels are, look at what they're doing with drugs, with the fentanyl. And somewhat the myth, uh, they are working with the Chinese Communist Party. All those precursor chemicals for fentanyl are coming from China into labs that the cartels are running. They're in northern Mexico, not far from our border, and then they're loaded onto these drug traffickers. And across the border, it comes. And we all know the numbers you've got... a You've got about 7 million people, basically equivalent to the population of Tennessee, that have come across, and the majority of those have applied for asylum. Some of those are the known gotaways, and the bad guys are the unknown gotaways, which would be a number north of that 7 million. So people look at this. They look at the foreign aid. They look at the border budget. And they're saying, hey, wait a minute, why can't we secure this border? Because right now, cartels are making billions of dollars off the drugs. Americans are dying, 100,000 last year, 4,000 Tennesseans. Because of fentanyl overdoses and deaths, law enforcement is telling us that nearly everything they apprehend, whether it's press bills or gummy bears, that the drugs they apprehend are laced with fentanyl. So, And then you look at the human trafficking side, and the cartels have since 2019, when human trafficking was a $500 million a year enterprise, now it's $150 billion a year. And every two minutes in this country, a child is bought or sold for sex, and you have HHS that has 85,000 migrant children that they cannot find. They do not know their whereabouts. And it's like uh, one of my friends at church said, tell me what's, why they won't say this is wrong. And that was her question to me. Why will they not say this is wrong? because we all know that it is we know it's modern day slavery we know that pushing these drugs into our communities has made every town a border town every state a border state and you see the unrest that this issue is causing and the crime that it is causing in our communities and joe biden says nothing
0: yeah, it is remarkable. And it's, I think, a moment where Americans, they see fentanyl coming into their communities. They know the open borders here and they just keep seeing Joe Biden's everything's fine. And Alejandro Marquez everything is fine. And they know it's not fine. They're in their communities. They know somebody that died from fentanyl poisoning. It's so frustrating to see this. And I want to ask as a follow up. So there's this you know, we got three billion we give to Mexico. Is it time for the Senate and the House to reconsider how we give aid and maybe to fashion that aid to Mexico in a way that leverages more results from cracking down on the cartels, protecting the border, getting remain in Mexico implemented? Do you think there is an appetite among your colleagues to maybe do something legislatively to tie aid to progress in Mexico instead of just giving the money away for
1: There should be. uh, When you look at how our money is spent across the globe, Uh, when I was in the House, John, we had a piece of legislation that came out of the Republican Study Committee that if somebody's going to vote against us 50% of the time at the U.N., then let's not give them this money because they're using that money to turn around and vote against the United States and not support our Positions on things. Now, maybe it is time to do a revisit on this to say to people, look, we're not going to be a cash cow in a piggy bank. And we want to make certain that we're making the world safer and more, and that we are protecting American interests and American citizens. So let's make that our priority.
0: Yeah, it's such a common sense thing. And it used to be the the basis of foreign policy. You define the American interest and then you would make. But today it seems like we give away stuff and we can yell at Mexico, but we might have to yell at Iran. Obviously, the six billion dollars in released unfrozen assets goes to Iran in exchange for five prisoners. And apparently two of those, if I understand correctly, are going to be two Iranian prisoners going to be allowed to stay in the United States. Shouldn't they be deported?
1: Well, they should be deported. The fact that they're going to allow them to remain in the United States. And uh, here they have gone through this prisoner swap. But these guys have said, we don't want to swap. We want to be free, but we want to be free to work in the United States. And there's no way we can control what they're going to do. And uh, you, you've got to look at it like this. I mean, money is fungible. You give the Iranians $6 billion dollars, What in the world do you think they are going to do with that money? Now, Joe Biden and Anthony Blinken can stand out there and all day long say, well, they've got to go ask permission and they've got to make certain they're using it for humanitarian aid. I can tell you one thing. Iran is not going to use that money to feed starving people. They are focused on building nuclear weapons. On enriching uranium, they are working with their cohorts in the axis of evil, Russia, China, North Korea. You're looking at the increasing coziness, the way they are flaunting this coziness at the United States, the way the Iranians are building drones over in Russia so that the Russians can use those against the Ukrainians. And, of course, probably China, who we have heard is banking this endeavor in Russia. Maybe they're going to turn around and use those drones against the Taiwanese and against Taiwan and against the other Pacific Island nations. Uh, You just don't know. You look at the rocket research that is being done in North Korea, and you look at how inhumanely the people in North Korea are being treated. You look at how the Chinese Communist Party is using artificial intelligence to surveil and track the Uyghurs. Uh, All of these things should be topics of discussion, and it should be a reason for us to be very careful about what happens with situations like Iran. You're now allowing them to get their hands on an additional $6 billion. The world's largest state sponsor of terrorism just got a huge, big payday. Thanks to Joe
0: Biden. Yeah, and the U.N. Weapons Agency says right after the money was committed, they were asked to leave certain sites. So uh, clearly compliance with nuclear oversight only goes down as we reward them for bad behavior. Just remarkable stuff. Thirty three trillion dollar deficit. We just crossed that threshold. Thirty percent increase in the service of the debt in the last year because of bidenomics driving up both inflation and interest rates your old colleagues in the house have sent or on the cusp of maybe reaching a deal that would cut discretionary spending by eight percent i think it'd be pretty large and historic by the last two decades standards is that a good start is that a good place to see that we can maybe get some reduction done even in the midst of biden spending
1: it would be a giant step forward and um As you know, during the debt ceiling deal, there was the agreement between Schumer and McCarthy that discretionary spending would be at the $1.47 trillion number. Now Chuck Schumer is so desperate for a government shutdown, he's trying to blow that cap already before they've exercised that cap. The House is trying to negotiate their way to a CR. We are encouraging them to reach a deal. On a CR, and also to pass their appropriations bills, which they should have been doing over the last several months, and sending those to us. It is important to keep in mind that the federal government debt, the amount of excess spending that has been done over the last uh, few years with um, with Biden in the White House. It has broken all the spending records. And, of course, they negotiated those caps in that debt ceiling deal. They do not want to abide by those caps. Schumer is trying to break those caps because he knows the only hope he's got of even trying to hang on to the, um, the Senate would be to have a government shut down and have Republicans blamed for that. So we're we're trying to remind people that Schumer's the one that broke the deal. And what we're doing is encouraging the House to come forward with their spending bills and with the CR while we complete that work on those spending bills and get this body back on regular order.
0: Yeah, I know the American people waiting for that. I want to turn to one last subject, one that you have been bold and right about all from the beginning. Yesterday, we had a story that said that the FBI had a second informant on the Hunter Biden case. They were asked to shut it down by the Delaware team that was overseeing the investigation. Tomorrow, we're going to have a story that says that the FBI was looking at allegations against Joe Biden's 2020 campaign, whether it received illegal contributions in connection with Hunter Biden. They, asked, they were asked to shut it down. We know they were denied search warrants. We know they were were tipped off Hunter Biden so they couldn't be interviewed. We know they allowed the statute of limitations to expire. You have been one of the most articulate in describing the concerns that federal agencies seem to have a protection racket to the Biden family. First off, do you think American people are beginning to understand this was a big cover-up? And secondly, is there any way to use the budget process to perhaps thwart federal agencies from politically meddling in future parts of this investigation or any future investigation?
1: Yeah, you know, John, people look at this and they say two tiers of justice. Why is it that you have two tiers of access, two tiers of enforcement, two tiers of compliance, two tiers of justice? And you see this from all your federal agencies, whether it's the EPA, the IRS, DOJ, FBI, people are going, hey, wait a minute, this is not right. And I, I think as this Hunter Biden story and Biden Incorporated, as this is drug on, uh, Tennesseans have really turned their attention toward looking at that two tiers, two tiers of justice. And I was with a group of Tennesseans on Friday and they said, look, uh, the two tiers of justice really frighten us because if they can do certain things to Donald Trump, but then they can turn around and say to the Clintons, to the Bidens, and to their cronies, oh, uh, we're just going to turn a blind eye to that and let you skate. That really concerns people. It concerns small business owners, because then you can begin to manipulate. If they get their way, they can manipulate what businesses survive and which businesses sink, what people are held to account for wrongdoing and what people are not. And as they look at this situation time and again, I've heard if the House is able to prove that indeed Hunter Biden, James Biden, Joe Biden, Valerie Biden, whichever of the Bidens, all of the Bidens,
0: all nine of the Bidens, I guess. Yeah,
1: (laughs) right. If they did this, then they need to be held to account uh, to the full extent of the law. And that is what people want to see, because, you know, John, most people that I talk to truly love this country. They want the best for the United States of America. They want their children to grow up and know what it is to be an American and to know that there is equal justice for all in this country. And as they see these stories playing out and this cat and mouse game that's taking place around this information on the Bidens, it sickens them because that is not how we as americans conduct ourselves
0: yeah you are so right they just want things they want the facts and they want everyone to be treated equally And the last few years felt like they've been deprived of both for sure that's right yeah senator what a great honor to have you and i know how busy you are with so many things going to Hill. thank you for spending so much quality time with us we look forward to having you back
1: absolutely on. delighted to join you thanks
0: it was a great honor All right, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Eli Crane, yes, former special operator in the military, a war hero, and now a first-time congressman from Arizona. He is shaking up Washington in ways I haven't seen a freshman do in a while, holding the line, pushing, pressing, insisting that real change occur in the budget process, not lip service or incremental change. He's going to explain that to you, what he means by that, right after these messages. All right, folks, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there's been some historic things going on in Washington. No matter how the budget ultimately plays out, the conservative wing of the Republican Party, after decades of being told we'll cut government the next time, they've held their ground from the beginning of January to this very moment. And as a result, the baseline budget, the deal that's being bantied about, and it's not done yet, but there is going to be an 8% decrease in discretionary spending. I got to tell you, I've been in this town 35 years Never seen anybody get to this point where 8% is still on the table a few days before the end of the fiscal year. That is a major, major victory for those who want to shrink government. It's a down payment on what can be a lot, much larger cuts in the future. I wanted to go to one of the people who has held the line. He's only met in Washington a few months, but he's been one of the most impactful freshmen I have seen in a long time. He is Congressman Eli Crane from the great state of Arizona, a man who's been pushing for exactly these type of cuts. Congressman, great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. I don't know where this, no one, I think knows where this is going to ultimately end up. Will we get a CR? Will we not get a CR? What will happen? But the fact that the establishment has allowed a conversation to go and a deal to get into place that does meaningful cuts, not, not, you know, lip service, it has a pretty big victory for the strategy that you and your colleagues have pursued.
2: Yeah, you know, some people look at it that way, John. Uh, The bottom line is um, we had to hold the line to even get the conversations that are going on now. I I don't think it's enough. I think a lot of my colleagues that have held the line don't think it's enough. And because we understand uh, the financial crisis that this country is in, and the only way that um, this town will ever change is, is if they're forced to change. And that's why it requires many of us to hold the line and say no. Um, and stand in the gap and take all the slings and arrows. And, and and that's what we're doing.
0: Just to be at this point, it may not be the end point, but it is, for me, I've I've heard every two years, the Republicans say, this is the year, we never do it. It happens every year, it never happens. The fact that this is now the baseline, right? Maybe it'll go further, but it is a baseline. What needs to happen to get good fiscal conservatives like you on board with a final deal? What do you still need to feel good about this and send it over to Senate and let the Senate have their say?
2: Well, for me, what I personally need is I need to see us go through the actual appropriations bills like we were promised earlier this year. Uh, you heard many Republicans and leadership say that, you know, they were going to raise the debt ceiling and do that increase uh, with President Biden uh, to at least $4 trillion, which many of us thought was Astronomical and extremely foolish, but we were told that the cuts were coming as we just had to get to the appropriations process. Many of the 20 that fought in the speaker uh, deal uh, were were made promises that um, you know that were not then delivered on, and so um, you know unfortunately, Republican leadership has got themselves into a tough situation where they promised a lot of people a lot of things, and now it's come time to pay up and. Unfortunately, John, some some folks may think that for me, this is about, you know, going to war with Republican leadership. It's really not about that. It's it's about I have two daughters. Um, I want to see them grow up with some of the opportunities that we have. I want to see them be able to buy a house someday. I don't want to see them live in a country like Venezuela. And because of that, somebody has to come up here and say, no, we're not going to continue to spend money that we don't have. And if you look at this fight, John, uh, that's it, been going down the last couple months, um, you look at the annual deficit that we have in this town. We we bring in about $5 trillion in taxes, and we spend about $7 trillion in taxes. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to tell you that that's going to become problematic, especially when we just hit $33 trillion in national debt yesterday. Okay? And so the Freedom Caucus was really fighting for and a meager $115 billion in, in cuts. And we again, I said we have three trillion dollars a deficit or two of two trillion dollars every single year. So um, that's just that's just a small cut saying, hey, we're serious about getting our fiscal house in order. We're serious about turning this aircraft carrier a couple of degrees right now. And even the Republican uh, leadership wasn't even willing to do that. And so it's taken a fight. It's taken people that were willing to hold the line and say, we're not playing ball. We're not going along with it. And if, if you want to take the, take us up to the edge of a government shutdown, then that's on you. And, and we'll do everything in our power to make you own it. But the American people know, John, they know this town is out of control. They know this town has a massive spending problem. And unfortunately, is, On top of that, John, they know this town doesn't represent them, but also many institutions in this town that they pay for have become weaponized against them.
0: You're literally paying for your enemies to attack you.
2: One hundred percent, John. My voters, they call me, they email me, they text me, they call into the office, they email into the office. And the number one thing they tell me, John, is shut it down. And, you know, it's like it's not that they it's not that they don't realize that there will be some pain involved. It's that they fear what this government is turning into. And that's why they want a reckoning. And they know the only way that happens is if we exercise the power of the person, say, no, we're not going to we're not going to pay for that anymore. We're actually going to make some cuts in this town. We're going to start turning this thing around.
0: So let me walk through some of the scenarios. Obviously, this CR would kick it a month, set a baseline of recutting 8% and then buy some time to do what should have been done during the summer, right? I mean, these appropriations bills could have been months ago. We're right back there. But you would allow the appropriations bill to go step by step to actually identify some of the the things that would make up that 8% reduction if that were to fall in place, right? That there would still have to be appropriations bill at the end, Is that one thing that might get good fiscal conservatives like you more comfortable with the approach that's, you know, kind of evolving here?
2: You know, I I think it's enough for some. It's not enough for me. I I am not voting for us. am not voting for a CR. I'm not voting for a resolution. I know some people, you know, have different opinions on it. I'm not going to kick the can down the road, John. My my colleague Matt Gates says that September 30th did not come on a new date on the calendar this year. It came on the exact same date that it always does. We didn't do our work, and so uh, everybody knows there's going to be a government shutdown. And I want to see us actually go through those appropriations bills, do our work, actually write them to the levels that were agreed upon in January with Speaker McCarthy. And you know, and here's the thing, John, integrity is important. If you say something, if you take a pledge and the Freedom Caucus did on, on what spending levels we would agree to officially, and then you don't hold to that, you, have now, you now have a problem with your integrity and whether or not people are gonna believe you the next time you take an official position. So I'm, I wanna be a man up here, John, right, wrong or indifferent that when I say yes, it means yes, when I say no, it means no. And, and, and I want my voters to hear that and I want the American people to hear that there are people up here that are willing to hold the line.
0: Yeah, but listen, a brand that's worthless is worthless, right? And so if you can't live to your brand promise, then why do it? And I think that's it. What is exactly the sort of thing that I I know what you should should do? At this point, do you shut down the government, pass the appropriations bills, and then is 8% a good number for you? Do you want to see 10%, 15%? What are you looking for?
2: Well, like I said, um, John, the the, the uh, appropriations levels that that we fought for and took an official position on with uh, House Freedom Caucus, it was about 115. It was about 115 billion dollar cut from um, where we're at right now. That that's my understanding of it.
0: So you're 115 billion short for where this 8% is.
2: We're That's my understanding is that we're about 115 billion short. And it, again, Don, it just goes to show like this town isn't even willing to, uh, you know, run the math. <laughs> yeah, they're not willing to. They're not willing to move an inch unless they're forced to do so.
0: Now, listen, that that's what I think is pretty remarkable. I have to tell you that it is pretty amazing to even see this moment. And again, because I've been through this replay for you know two decades, and Republicans were in charge for most of that time. Every year, we're going to do it this year. Oh, it'll be next year. And th- there is something different here. I don't, it's not the end game. It's not going to be the final deal. I don't think we're anywhere near a final deal yet, but there is a movement that I've never seen achieved in this town. And, and I do think it is because of the steadfastness of people like yourself that it, say what they mean, mean what they say, and they're going to stick to it until they get what they promised their voters they were going to get. And that is a very different dynamic from The dynamic that, you know, I've seen for most of this time. As you set out, obviously there's going to be people in the moderate side of the Republican Party worried, hey, you're going to throw the election next year. Is there some messaging? Is there something that all Republicans can get behind that if there is a shutdown, there is a ability to explain to the American people why it's being done and that they're they're not intended to be the victims. They're supposed to be the people aided by this. And separately, what happens if the Dems and Republicans just do a deal and leave this deal behind?
2: Yeah, so I think that there is solid messaging that comes out of that, this, John. And and here's the deal. The American people know there's not only two tiers of justice in this system, but there's also two levels of uh, financial accountability in this system. The federal government has none. They know that, but they know that if they're late on their taxes, the IRS doesn't extend the same you know, uh, they don't. It's in the same latitude.
0: Right. Unless you're unless you're Hunter Biden. And that might be a little different with Hunter Biden.
2: <laughs> right. Exactly. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. You know, so I think that um, the American people understand that there are people that are trying to turn this aircraft carrier around. And, uh, so, you know, some people aren't going to understand that. But, you know, that that's o- that's OK. You can please some of the people all the time, all the people some of the time. You'll never please all of the people all the time. And here's what I say to you know members in my own party, colleagues that say, you know, that, well that you know Republicans are just going to make a deal with Democrats and you know bring up bring forth a, a clean CR. You know, then then do it. Let them own that, John. For too long in this town, Republicans have given given in to these you know these threats and the, you know, tried to map this chessboard out five, six pieces in advance instead of just doing the right thing today. I think if you do the right thing today, do what you know what is right. You let the cards fall where they do. And and you let people that are making deals with Hakeem Jeffries and the Democrats and continuing to spin our country into oblivion, you make them own that. And I think the American, I, I think, weak Republicans that are willing to make deals with Democrats have been provided air cover by conservatives who want to do the right thing, but they get scared at the last minute because of all the pressure of, oh my God, you're going to shut the government down. Do you realize the implications of that? And and, and it's not that we don't realize that, that there are implications to it. It's that we're much, much more concerned about the byproduct of this town, what it's become and how it's out of control with its, Lack of fiscal responsibility, and it, that it, it increasingly is weaponized against the American people.
0: Yeah, let me ask his last question because obviously there's a, a people be looking at these the dynamics. And one of the narratives that'll be out there is: isn't it better to take eight percent than just have the Democrats shove through, uh, you know, the normal spending bill that keeps everything status quo? If ha- if you had to choose between the eight percent reduction, if that's really plausible and feasible. Uh, and just letting Democrats do it, uh, what would be the, um, the justification for just letting the Democrats do it? Or do you have another plan that maybe we haven't thought of yet?
2: Well, first of all, it, my understanding is it's 8% for 30 days, right? So I, I don't think that that's going to make or break this country when we're $33 trillion in debt. What I do think might make or break the country is if the American people give up hope, because nobody ever does what they say that they're going to do. And so that's why I'm going to hold the line up here, John. I'm going to have my yes be my yes, my no be my no. And I you know, I'm going to I'm going to keep fighting for change up here. And you know, the good thing is, John, for everybody out there that's listening to this show that might not agree with me or you know, think I'm too naive or or whatever it is, you guys can fire me in a year and a half and I'll go back to what I was doing. <laughs>
0: There's a freedom in feeling that way, isn't there? Because you get to act just on your conviction.
2: There sure is, John. It's it's wonderful when you can just say nope. You know, I'm, I didn't come up here for that. I didn't come up here for these minuscule little little wins. And I know people think I'm naive for even saying that because they've never even seen a win or any glimmer of a win. But we're not going to save this country um, without some pretty massive change, and that change will not come um, unless. Uh, you know, enough of us move in lockstep with courage and just and, and just make people, um, you know, adhere to the promises and the deals that they've made.
0: Well, that is uh, that's exactly why I wanted to get you on the show. I wanted to understand exactly. You know, I haven't gone through this process. Watch it's what's happened. And by the way, also, it is going to be irrefutable no matter how this turns out, that the tenacity and in uh, doggedness that you have applied to these negotiations over the last few weeks, even brought that 8% discussion to the table. I mean, I just, like, like I said, been here a long time and it never happened. So there's progress. I guess obviously a lot more progress to get your support. But, um, there's no doubt that that determinate uh, the way you've, you've pursued this has created a sort of conversation that literally in 30 years, I've never, I've never seen. It's been pretty remarkable. And I have no idea where this is going to end up. I don't think anyone knows where it's going to end up. Yes, uh, right now. Have you seen anything in the last 24 hours that gives you Hope or pessimism about the way this is going, or is it sort of just the giant spaghetti on the wall that it looks like right now you know
2: it's it's tough to uh fly to the thirty thousand foot view of john and you know see outside of the fog of war right now uh, but like I said earlier on in the show, I do believe that if enough of us stand on principle and conviction i do especially if you if especially if you're a prayerful group and you you seek God and wisdom and discernment i do believe there is uh the possibility for change and so i'm just going to keep i'm just going to keep relying on that and uh we'll let these carts fall where they do but you know as president trump said when he was campaigning i mean when you look around at what's going on from our southern border you know, to our, you know, our economic situation and, and so so many other issues, John. I mean, what do we really have to lose? What do we have to lose? Yeah.
0: And also today was a, a day of infamy for our budget, right? $33 trillion debt amassed as of today. Um, there's just no more room on these credit cards. And I think that's one of the things that you keep pointing out. I think you've said that many times on my show at some point. The credit card just literally has no elasticity to it. And at $33 trillion, I think a lot of people think that is the moment. And of course, that struck just this morning. So pretty remarkable. Congressman, we're going to be watching you in action. We always enjoy having you on the show. And uh, the next few days and I think the next few weeks are going to be a moment where some potentially powerful history is written. Now, it could be bad history or good history, depending how this goes. But uh, seeing you in action, I think uh, your colleagues know exactly where you stand. And uh, that is something always valuable in a negotiation like this. So good to have you on the show. So really appreciate your time today.
2: Thank you, John. I appreciate you, brother.
0: Yeah, you too. We're going to be in touch real soon. Thank you again. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages.
3: Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret?
0: All right, folks. That wraps up another edition of John Solomon reports the podcast from Justin News. Hey, as you know, our good friends at the US Oil and Gas Association have started a movement to fight back against city, state, and federal regulators who want to make obsolete some of the most common appliances that we use in our homes: the gas stove, the gas grill, the gas water heater, the gas furnace, ceiling fan. They are imposing efficiency standards that may be so extreme that the devices that we now have in our homes would not be allowed to be sold in the marketplace in the future. In other words, they're telling you what you can put in your house, what you can't put in your house, what you can cook on. And that's why the U.S. Oil and Gas Association created the HandsOffMyStove.com movement. HandsOffMyStove.com is a place where people worried about choices in our home, freedom of the right to live our lives as we choose, can band together and work together to have a conversation with the city regulator, the state regulator, the federal regulator making these decisions. If you want to join that movement, go to handsoffmystove.com today. Go join today. I'm in. I've been learning a lot from the weekly emails I get. You would too. Go check it out today. All right. Big thanks to Senator Blackburn, Congressman Crane, for a great conversation. Check out the site tomorrow. Big Hunter Biden exclusive in the morning. Until then, God bless you. Have a great night.